Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. The beautiful thing about Freaknik is those experiences that we just talked about um, of our brothers and sisters and predominantly white institutions, this was their moment of the entire year to be around their own people and just have fun, right? And enjoy the same music, the same kind of, you know, cultural activity, the all of that. And that is, I think, a legacy we should be proud of in helping to, to create that venue for young black students to come and just enjoy themselves. They didn't want to go to the beach. They didn't want to go to, you know, whatever. I don't know, they're skiing or whatever. They wanted to be socially engaged and involved with their own. And that's what Freaknik offered. I think the name Freaknik is kind of, uh, kind of degrading, you know, honestly. It gives the people an impression that when they come down here, that everybody is going to just be a freak, basically. Should really just be repulsed at the idea of this Clark Atlanta University freshman saying that Freaknik is a civil rights issue. He's bringing the National Guard out just because some, some brothers and some sisters are trying to get together. I think that's just outrageous. Atlanta's white and black leadership work together for the common good. Never, 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 never shall I let you down. I'm Chris Frierson, a documentary filmmaker based in New York City by the way of the greatest state in America shaped like a human hand, Michigan. Welcome to Freaknik, a discourse on a paradise lost. As mentioned in the last episode, my producer Savannah had arranged this weird Silence of the Lambs style quid pro quo agreement wherein I could interview this awesome teacher professor at Georgia State University as long as I had lectured about documentary filmmaking to her class. I was mad nervous. So I'm delighted to have Chris here, and I should also say that his most recent uh, documentary, The King, was nominated for an Emmy. Gr- Grammy. Um, Grammy. Grammy, sorry. Yeah. Sorry, Grammy, yes, because it's music. I lost. But that's okay. It was yeah. nominated. <laughs> I lost. And some of you said you'd seen it or were familiar with it. I lost, I lost to Quincy, but I went in there and I was like, ah, oh, I know I'm going to lose. I'm not gonna, it's like not going to be a thing. But then when I lost, I was like, damn. And it totally was a thing. But it was cool. All right. So um, further ado. After faking my way through this lecture about my quote-unquote profession in filmmaking, like a weird black version of, of Charlie Brown's teacher, the conversation soon turned to Freaknik. What's the first thing that comes to your mind when you think about Freaknik? Yeah, so the first thing that comes to my mind is sex. Uh, there's two sides of it. There's people that want to just genuinely go out and party, and then there's, like, predators. You from Atlanta? Yeah. Your parents from Atlanta? No. When did you first hear about Freaknik? The first time I heard about it probably was, like, 97. I remember when my mom was driving downtown and people were, like, hopping on top of cars, like, our car and acting crazy and, like, having fun. I'm like, oh, my gosh, like, I can't wait till I get older. And then they were like, no, no, no. (laughs) 
let's put a stop like to all of this madness because it's getting outrageous. I think they should bring it back, but have limits. They have Mardi Gras, right. you know, same thing, different city type of deal. Throughout this process, I've heard multiple people talk about when exactly freaking started, ended, peaked, valid. But, you know, that's one of the most rad things about it. Everyone's got their own truth, their own perspective. And who's to say who's right or wrong? But by far and away, the most popular consensus was that Freaknik was actually started by the D.C. Metro Club on the grounds of the AUC. I didn't start it. So, you know, I, I did run it from, like, 88, 89. Um, but it probably started in 80. And I, I'm not even sure who started it. I could probably figure out two or three iterations before me, um, you know, but, but I haven't, haven't taken the time to sort of find the person that was kind of really at the beginning. But, but at least I always start by saying, I didn't start it. I did blow it up, but I didn't start it. That was Henry Beecher Hicks III, CEO of the soon-to-be-open National Museum of African American Music in Nashville, which naturally is the best location to honor everything that is African American. So DC Metro Club uh, was or is, I don't I don't actually don't know if it still exists. I would imagine it does, but it was really uh, a student organization on the campus of of the AUC, Morehouse Spellman, Clark, and Morris Brown, where students from DC would get together once a month to plan stuff. Aside from it being a social club, like it was through the DC Metro Club that um, arranged for buses to take students back home for the holidays. We would uh, charter buses at Thanksgiving and Christmas and spring break and, you know, one, two, three, four buses and put up posters around campus of 60 bucks, you can go home. And so it was a way that, you know, all the kids from D.C. hop on a bus and go home. And so and we'd make a little bit of money doing that. But that's mostly what we did. I mean, there were some some civic and some community service kinds of things that we did. Uh, but the biggest thing was just kind of getting folks together to see one another, um, you know, at least once a month, and then to, to plan these bus trips. And then um, there were two social events that we had, two big social events that we had during the year. One was the pajama party, which was usually in February or early March. Then the other party was Freaknik. Freaknik was usually, you know, towards the end of the year. So it would be, you know, kind of in the April time frame, you know, maybe early May, maybe just before exams. And, uh, and so we planned Freaknik. And one of the things that I remember was that the charter, the rules of the campus schools, the AUC, was that student clubs could do things to raise money during the year, but you had to have no more than a $50 balance in your account at the end of the year. So in effect, if you got good at raising money, you had to spend it all by the end of the year. So uh, one way we spent the money was planning Freaknik. Kind of by the time I graduated in 89, we got good enough, we were making money on Freaknik too, but, and then we would give money to local charities on the way out. So as the school year was ending, you know, we would write checks to local charities and give them money. So no one, I think, in public consciousness thinks about Freaknik in its inception in early stages as a charity fundraiser. <laughs> <laughs> and so what was it like running it? Like, a lot of people have been like, there's no organization, there was no plan, there was no anything. What was running it like? Yeah. 
Well, I mean, I mean, well, so first of all, yeah, I mean, that's not true. What you would do essentially is you would go out and you'd get a park permit to have a function at a park. Mm -hmm. And then you would, you know, ensure that you had electricity so the DJ could plug in and you would do posters and put posters up around town or you would, you know, and that's what you would do to let people know when it was and tell them to come out. You didn't charge to get in. I mean, sort of in, in those days, there really wasn't, you know, much of sort of this whole after party thing or, you know, any of the stuff that it became. But yeah, I mean, so it was looking back on it, it was pretty simple. It was a lot of work. So we managed to track down one of the OG founders of Freaknik, Spelman grad Sharon Toomer, in her old stomping grounds in Washington, D.C. So in 1981, we, the D.C. Metro Club, which I was a member, the theme for the year was around everything the freak, the return of the freak. There was a dance, uh, you know, in 81, the return of the freak. Yeah, The Freak. There you yeah, go. Because like, Chic had uh, a, a song, too. They had the dance. But anyway, so he his record came out. There was the dance, The Freak. There was all this. So the DC Metro Club had this theme of the year, Return of the Freak, right? Okay, so then uh, it came time for our spring break. This is important. I think this is an important part of this whole story because it is spring break what do you think about? You're going to the beach, you're going home. A lot of us could not afford to do any of that, right? So we had to plan something for those students who were staying in the, at the AU Center or staying, you know, in school during spring break when other people were going away to whatever they do. But we had a picnic and on Spelman's campus, we had a meeting, and so Rico said we should have a picnic. And then it was, you know, what do we call it? We've been we've been branding everything we've done up to this point, and Rico Brown came up with let's call it Freaknik. So we had this small gathering on campus. It was a really small gathering, and in that meeting, what like can you picture it in your mind? We were in a classroom in the basement of Giles Hall, which is a one of our learning buildings on Spelman's campus. I don't know if it still is, but it was then. And so uh, we're meeting in this basement, and this is where this conversation takes place. And that's where we could meet. So that's where this idea came up. And so when Rico said Freaknik, what was your reaction? We must have all loved it because we went with it. And what time of the year was this during the planning stages? I would say it was at the start of the year because we had to we had to come up with something. That was a big agenda item. For people that don't understand, like why was that an agenda item? Well, like what explain the agenda items and why events were necessary to do and important well, to do. Well, one aside from it being a social club, like it was through the DC Metro Club that um, arranged for buses to take students back home for the holidays. So that's how um, my freshman year, when we close up for you know Christmas, the Christmas holidays, it was the DC Metro Club who arranged for the buses to take me and my classmates and our you know back here to this area. Um, 
So they were significant in that they organized. They were social clubs that organized events and activities. So, and unique to the population of the geographic area. There was something very special about the DC Metro Club. And there was some, you know, uh, competition of, of geography. But we always had, I may be a bit biased here, we always had really good stuff that everybody came to, okay? Uh, Freaknik. I mean, you know, everybody likes Go-Go. I mean, you, if you don't like Go-Go, you're going to learn to like Go-Go if you go to an HBCU, right? Washington, D.C. is famous for three things. Wale, crack, and Go-Go music. Just kidding. No disrespect to Chocolate City. But I did learn that Go-Go music was instrumental to the foundations of Freaknik. As one does when trying to find quote-unquote real people to tell quote-unquote real stories, you sometimes have to listen on who we know. In this case, one of my producer's friend's cousins, Helen Williams, connected us with two dudes, both named John, and both members of the seminal Freaknik Go-Go band known as the Metro Boys. So we all met at her crib, and upon arrival were greeted with a delectable spread of chocolate chip cookies, lemonade, fruits, and water and proceeded to discuss the Metro Boys saga. So when I got down there, I, you know, I didn't know anybody. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm in Atlanta, so you know, I'm jumping from the north to the south, mm-hmm. you know, all these hundreds of miles away. Mm-hmm. And um, so you look for normalcy. So you right, try to find right. my first few friends, and they weren't from D.C., mm-hmm. but um, um, quickly I found a few few people mm-hmm. um, as, as time went through the first semester um, uh, that was you know, from home, and they introduced me to the D.C. Metro Club. Okay. And that that's kind of how it, it, it kind of started from there. And so I got a chance to meet the, the leaders, and uh, that was great. That was, that was that's kind of how it kind of uh, matriculated. And they were like, yeah, we do all these parties, and we do all this stuff, and, man, I wish we, you know, we've been trying to get a go-go band and, and all that kind of stuff. And I said, I said, okay, go-go band, you know, and I said, oh, man, you know, I'm a drummer. I said, you know, and then John was coming in in town, and and so we talked. I was like, yo, man, would it be crazy if we had a go-go band up here? That's kind of how we met. All I remember is it was just an older group. They had already had things on lock, and when we went that first year, I just couldn't believe how many like college kids could show up at a party. Yeah. And now a word from our sponsors. You may know it as a custom for speakers on occasions like this for the speaker to begin by telling the audience what a great pleasure it is to be here. And so it is a great pleasure to be here. It's a uh, pleasure to be here in many different sorts of ways, not the least of which has to do with my profession. I am by profession a politician. That's obviously not a popular profession to be in in the United States. That was Julian Bond, an OG civil rights student in a town full of OG civil rights students. His legacy lives on today through his son, City Councilman Michael J. Bond. We met him in his awesome office in City Hall in downtown Atlanta. Amongst the photos and posters of his strikingly handsome father, also adorning the walls and bookshelves, were comic book characters, figurines, Another nerd paraphernalia. I knew instantly that I was going to like this dude. This is quite possibly one of my favorite offices I've ever been in. Oh, thank you very much. Do you like comics or the collectibles? Uh, both. 
I started out when I was young. I wanted to be a, either a, a cartoonist or an animator. Right. And it's a cautionary tale because if you don't develop your talent, you wind up in politics. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have the pleasure, honor, and distinction of having been at the original Freak Night in 1985. So by the time I was a freshman at Morehouse, the spring came around time for the picnic. And so they were promoting it off campus. It was over at John A. White Park in, in West End. And they had a flyer and the flyer said, come and meet the freaks at the picnic. The freaks was a euphemism for, I guess, loose and seductive women. And of course, all the students said, hey, we're gonna go to the quote unquote freak Nick over in West End. And it ended up being a uh, very heavily laden uh, with alcohol uh, picnic and cookout. And was it was actually very cool to attend. We were out there all day long. Everybody had on, you know, cut off jeans. And there is an important distinction, either their Morehouse College Athletic Department t-shirt, because that meant you were a real student. You know, you weren't just somebody had gone to the mall and gotten a Morehouse shirt and right. perpetrated. So this is Historically Black Colleges and Universities Executive Order. This month has been a wonderful opportunity to celebrate African-American history and to begin working together to create a better future for African-Americans and universities and colleges and everything that is African-American. In case you didn't recognize that voice, that was noted civil rights activist and prominent African-American enthusiast, President Donald J. Trump. He loves a good HBCU. The Atlanta University Center is a consortium of six institutions. Uh, you, well, now five. They're the largest collection of African-American institutions in the same place anywhere in the world. Originally it was six. It was uh, Spelman College, Clark College, Morehouse College, Morris Brown College, Atlanta University, and the Interdenominational Theological Center, uh, which you know, is a seminary. And these are all schools that were formed in association with uh, the Freedmen's Bureau right after the end of the Civil War. Atlanta University, for the longest time, was the principal, was the principal school uh, in, in the area. Both Morehouse and Spelman uh, were established uh, in the basement of what is now Friendship Baptist Church. They were established in a basement? Yeah, they, they, they began to have their classes in the, in the basement of the church. Uh, you know, and Morehouse actually started out as a, as a seminary. That's why you have the uh, Morehouse School of Religion being associated with the Interdenominational Theological Center. That is quite I can't a mouthful. Say that. I cannot say that. <laughs> yeah, it's always quite a mouthful, but... Those schools were established uh, right after the civil, majority of them right after the Civil War. Uh, the, the, uh, the Joint Seminary was established in the late 1940s, 1950s. And the brain power, the uh, training of African Americans that's come out of that has just been tremendous. What it is is another renaissance, an Atlanta rebirth, a reawakening a concentration of black creative energy that cannot help but challenge and change us. It's a renaissance, and it's happening right here, right now, although almost nobody is calling it that yet, either because they haven't noticed it or because they're too busy working to stop long enough to wonder if we're in vogue yet. The Atlanta we enjoy today 
uh, benefits from not only the entrepreneurial spirit, uh, but the the level of education that people have had led to a amount of sophistication, not in politics and in business, where we've been able to grow a stable middle class in Atlanta for many decades, and which was different in some other cities because African-Americans in Atlanta subsequently had a lot of access to capital. The largest metropolitan center in the entire region, Atlanta is also a major banking, retail, and convention center. In conversations that I've had with, whether it be a politician or a journalist or anybody that I've talked to so far from Atlanta, and something that I can see in my own family who are, who are down here, is that this is an environment where you, as a kid, on a regular day-to-day basis, are encountered with successful black people. That's the reason that the city is so special is because we always knew that we had people that had really done their thing. Like, we've been seeing black millionaires since we were kids. I legit wanted to know what kids these days, kids that went to these schools that started Freaknik, knew and felt about the event. So we pulled up to the AUC and talked to some people. Do you remember uh, Freaknik at all? Not at all, but I seen pictures and videos on Twitter about it, you know. So. And, like, what what did those pictures look like? If they say Free Neek, I think of a huge... Meetup. Concert. Yeah, I think of a huge outside area, like, like let's say, like, Centennial Park with some crazy speakers and everybody I think of I think of Freak Neek, like, everybody, like, a flash mob in all of Atlanta. It's kind of like Miami, but it's Miami for spring break, but in Atlanta. That's what it seemed like to me. Let's just all go downtown in our cars. Everybody, whatever really you got, come on. Let's, we just about spot. to party for a day and not care about it. Like, and not care what the consequences, not care who's going to see. Like, I feel like that's what Freak Nick was. Like. I mean, Freak Nick back and they shut it down. The city, the city shut it down, but we try to bring we try it back. To throw, we try to bring Freak Nick down. We try to throw a little party. We try to, uh, at the atrium, uh, like Stone Mountain. And it was on the news and they shut it down. It looked pretty. It looked pretty lit, but at the same time, there was, you know, you know, I don't know if I could cuss on here or whatever. Like, okay, so like niggas was wild. You know what I'm saying? Like, niggas was wild indeed. If you had a time machine, and you had three different trips you could make, would you choose Freaknik as one of them? Wow, that's a real good question. Uh, <laughs> you know what? Dang, I never thought about it like that. Probably, yeah, probably. Now that I think about it, I would definitely go to Free Nick. And this dude was mad cool and insightful. We got into talking both about HBCUs and Atlanta in general. Well, the fact on how, you know, Too Short, I was watching a documentary about Too Short not too, uh, not too long ago, and he was just saying how it's kind of like a, a melting pot of, of so many different cultures Come, coming out to Atlanta, um, and so from from uh, so many different places, especially black black people coming from multiple multiple areas. Like a lot of people that live in Atlanta, are not even from here. But um, I, I think Atlanta specifically has just such a rich history, as far as like the civil rights movement, as far as music wise, um, cultural wise. The Olympics, like all those things, have really made. Um, and of course, and of course, like the AUC. What's dope about the AUC is that, like, 
you know, compared to all the other HBCUs like, you know, Howard, FAMU, whatever, what's dope about the AUC is that three, actually like, like four or five different HBCUs, because, you know, Morris Brown is still around, even though it's kind of like, uh, um, I don't want to say deteriorated, but um, even though it's not as what it yeah, used to be, yeah, prominent. Um, it's still there, right. you know, and the fact on how we have multiple HBCUs, very prominent HBCUs um, in, in literally one area, I think that's like a beautiful thing as well. When Homeboy mentioned Too Short on some ages shit, I was lightweight surprised that he even knew about the Oakland rap superstar from generations ago. Then I thought back to when I talked to him less than generations ago, meaning two weeks, about the same topic. I would say to myself, it was sort of to me, at the time, I'm like 27 years old, somewhere in there. I'm getting out of the freak nick, this uh, black college experience that I, I missed out on when I was in high school. I was like, I want to go to a, to a black college. But hip-hop and the life I was living sidetracked me, and I, I kind of got into the music game without having to go that route. And it still was a void, man. It still was, you see movies like School Days, and you go, damn, I want to do that shit, you know? Like, you, it was something that was in me for a long time that I really wanted to do that I didn't do. So when I got around the AU Center and Morris Brown, Clark Atlanta, the uh, Spellman and Morehouse and just all these black students and it's you know it's you know it's the 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 excellence in the making you know what I mean. As a black kid who went to Michigan State University, which is not exactly known as a bastion of diversity, it was super cool to see a group of high schoolers on a field trip to the AUC to scope out the universities. I talked to their guidance counselor. Pun intended. She schooled me on something I had never heard before. Sure. I think for me, as a college counselor, I think it's important to, um, first of all, educate students historically on what HBCUs are and what their commitment are to the black community. Um, and also to let them know that students have these options and they should continue to go, um, especially to um, increase not only enrollment, but opportunities. And then the alumni networks that students can get by attending HBCUs. They're unlike others. Um, it's something I wish I would have pursued when I went to college. Uh, so I really try to expose my students to that so they can know those options are out there. I think, I mean, I can feel it just being at the campus here. I think it's a sense of home and connectiveness that other campuses don't uh, have. So, like, attending the PWI, I know that, you know, it was a lot harder for me to kind of navigate some of those spaces. But what is a PWI? What does that mean? I'm sorry, a predominantly white institution. Oh, because <laughs> I've heard that, like, three <laughs> sorry, times. Sorry, I'm like, sorry. I'm like, what is a PWI? Yes, yeah, a predominantly white institution. So I went that's to... That's America. Yeah, that's right. That's all the schools, right? So I think that's, like, when you're here at a school like Clark and just being on Spelman's campus, like, you feel that sisterhood, you feel that connectiveness that the faculty have with the students. Um, and also, it's just a sense of home, right? Like, I think students feel welcome, they feel supported, they feel like this is a place I can thrive in and really get the full education that I deserve and I need. And I think that's very unique to why HBCUs are so important to our communities and why we really need to make sure that they're funded properly. Um, and not only that, but making sure that students have access to them, they have the scholarships, they have the resources to attend them so they can continue to grow. Down in the main thoroughfare of the AUC, you can really like feel a real sense of community. And it's a community that I hadn't experienced before on a college campus. At Michigan State, of course, yeah, we had quads, but it was just like 
a bunch of kids playing hacky sack and ultimate frisbee and drinking. This was different. There's food trucks selling chicken, people hanging out, and, and just enjoying life. It was dope. You want to get together and you want to have these events. And every event that's been uh, organized, it just it just gets, you know, from Virginia Beach to the Freaknet, it gets out of control. You want to have that ultimate party where everybody's just free. But it just, it's only for a little time, you know. And then it, it just, it becomes something bigger. And because of that myth and that mystique, and, and other black people like, well, I want to be a part of this, you know, and that's because we're so starved, you know, for gatherings where we can just be free and be ourselves. That, that, that's a part of it, I think. Right. And I think the innocence that, that, that was, even though it was called, and I will say this, even though it was called Freaknik, um, uh, the, the innocence of the gathering, mm-hmm. um, at its purest sense, it was it was really people just coming together, hang mm-hmm. out, have College a good time. Kids. It was like mm-hmm. the biggest College picnic kids. you could have. I mean, they you know there were people you know you know throwing the footballs. There were, I mean, there was it was just you know a good time. You know, we were releasing. And now another sponsor time. Pre-internet pre-social media, Freaknik was a word-of-mouth experience, drawing people in from all across the country, and drawing people into these elite universities where they often stay. But we spoke to Justin Henderson, professionally known as Henny the Business. He's a former Morehouse student, now a Morehouse professor, and current music producer behind one of the best Young Jeezy songs that's ever existed in the world. My president. It's about Barack Obama. But the reasoning behind this conversation is because his brother's stories of Freak Tank drew him to Morehouse and Atlanta. My dad took us out there to Seattle when I was very young and I uh, grew up in Seattle. And when my brother, he's five years older than me, he was, you know, uh, on his way to try to figure out he wanted to go to HBCU. And he was in between Howard and Morehouse. And my uncle came down uh, and took him on a trip to, to Atlanta and uh, I believe it was around the time of the one of the first Freakniks, and I think, or just the tail end of it, maybe it was like the late April of that. Um, and he must have caught wind of just what was in the city, and he was like, "I'm going to Atlanta, and I'm going to Morehouse." And that next year, after his freshman year, he would come back and just tell me these stories. And mind you, I'm like 12, 13, just completely idolizing my brother, and I'm like, "Yo," he's just telling me about just how. Um, we grew up in a very predominantly, uh, you know, white uh, upbringing, and it was one for us. It was like just find that culture, and then just the party scene. And he was just telling me so many stories. I was like, "That's the only place I want to go." Like, period. I didn't apply for any other school. I didn't think about any other school. I was like, "I'm going to Atlanta. I'm going to Morehouse," and I didn't even care because I knew I wanted to do music, and that was just that was my that was my trajectory. Yeah. Growing up, the term Morehouse man was often thrown around at family gatherings by the few and the lucky who attended this prestigious university on some I'm better than you nigga shit. But I never really knew the meaning of the term Morehouse man. I finally made it. And as I do, I am mindful of an old saying. You can always tell a Morehouse man, but you can't tell him much. 
yeah um morehouse is definitely um the epitome of black leadership in america uh morehouse strives itself on you know producing the most outstanding black leaders male black leaders in today's society well that's true a morehouse man is uh usually someone who is uh well read uh real, well uh versed uh, well educated uh and very self-assured and because that's morehouse wants to build uh, a strong sense of self in the individuals that matriculate there of course you find morehouse men in every field of endeavor you know in every uh facet in life i mean from education to medicine, religion, politics, I mean, acting, you know, you know, the arts, you, you name it. You've got a, a Morehouse man that's significant, you know. That's the epitome of, of the black man and, and being a, a strongest leader for not only uh, your community, but your family and um, all in between. Yeah. How was that sort of instilled in, so my uncle went to Morehouse, my cousins and them live out here. And he'd always be like, the the phrase Morehouse man was bandied about quite a bit. Right, right. When I was always around it. Yeah. What, is that, what does that mean? How do they instill that? Yeah, you know, they say it's somewhat of a mystique, right? I mean, of of the first day you get here to the, the week that you got to go through where, you know, um, just instilling you from day one excellence is is demanded you know the little things that you know about shun not the struggle and and uh, understanding that you know excellence is, is at the every as at the utmost of everything that you do and um, commitment to consistency and um, just learning how to make sure that you finish John one of my work homies introduced me to another one of these fancy niggas Anthony Demby went to Freaknik went to Morehouse and pulled up at the Massapeel offices for an interview. What drew you to Morehouse? Um, the legendary graduates, you know, like whether it be Edwin Moses, Dr. King, Spike Lee. Playback! Ernest, we gotta go down this way, okay? Okay. I remember meeting Spike Lee on my, um, my high school spring break. I was like, I'm going to Morehouse. He was like, cool he didn't give a fuck but like but i knew i wanted to go there just based on the legacy of the school he doesn't give a fuck about a lot of things especially now <laughs> <laughs> morehouse man henry beecher hicks the third um so when you got to atlanta how old were you 17 17 and what year was 1985 so i started morehouse in august of 85 and i was 17 years old so when you got to Morehouse, um, was there a feeling about Atlanta that you thought you could do whatever you wanted to do? Or what was your sort of perception of, given what we're talking about, of seeing all these other things? Um, how did you, like, take that in? You know, I, I don't think I had that sense because of Atlanta. I did have that sense because of the AUC. I did have that sense because of Morehouse. I mean, I, you know, I'll never forget that uh, within a week of being on the college campus, two or three professors had called me Mr. Hicks. And so, like, wait a minute, I'm still 17 years old. I've just been out of my 
parents' house for two or three weeks, and I'm Mr. Hicks? Yeah, you know, Mr. Hicks. Now, Mr. Hicks, I'm going to correct you, put on a tie. Mr. Hicks, quit being so loud, but it's Mr. Hicks. And so the AUC gives you a sense that these men and women, these young men and women who are here, you can do anything. Um, your race is not going to stop you. Right. So whatever it is you're trying to do, we've got the academic facilities, we've got the professors, we've got peers, we've got folks who are smarter than you at things that can help you still achieve what you're trying to achieve. But you might be the best at something and folks are going to call on you for that. But whatever it is you're trying to do, we can help you. Right. So don't, you know, don't, don't let the environment get in your way. You know, and, and so that's what you got from Morehouse and from the AUC. And that became very clear to me within a, just even a few weeks of being on campus was there's no reason I can't do anything. And I think what we saw today is this sense of hope, this sense of optimism. And that's what uh, I think the life and struggle of black people have been about in this country uh, since we made it here, since we came over in many different boats, really. One of struggle, one of movement, one of hope, and one of optimism. That we're moving from one level to another level. But the foundation of Atlanta and the, its educational center and its um, the black civic leadership, the black middle class, upper middle class, the black political power. When you're there, you feel, this is how I, I felt, and I haven't spent that much time down there as an adult, um, that it's different. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I think it is different. I mean, I think the way the city became Atlanta, you know, is different. So, um, you know, Atlanta was known as Terminus, Georgia, way back in the 1800s. And the railroads. And the railroads and all that. And there's a great book called Where Peachtree Meets Sweet Auburn, and it tells a story about the Dobbs family, which was Maynard Jackson's family, and the Allen family, uh, which was Ivan Allen's family. And Ivan Allen was a mayor of Atlanta, and, of course, Maynard became mayor. But it tells a story about how their their families intersected. And at one point, I believe it infers or implies that uh, the Allen family once owned the Dobbs family from a slavery perspective. Both families migrated to Atlanta and became prominent families in the city, uh, one becoming mayor after the other. And so, you know, at some point in the 70s when Maynard ran for mayor, became mayor, of course, you know, the, the story about him taking a position about the airport. Let's go, Atlanta. Delta is ready when you are. They said, like, you, you know, we're going to create a, a, a wealthy or a business class, a middle class of African-Americans, and they're just going to start by, you know, having business people work at the airport or, or help to build the airport. And so it created this explosion of, um, of a black middle class, uh, an entrepreneurial class, a black um, leadership class that was in power, both in business and in politics, that's unlike any other city in the country. Atlanta. Next time on Freaknik, a discourse on the paradise laws. Like, people say, like, no, they all say, like, you got to go to the black culture to figure out what's next. Atlanta is the black culture all the time. From food, clothes, li um, conversation, and we got the civil rights people. We got a lot of pride here. We got a lot of pride because Nomana Jackson was one of the first black mayors. That's what it means to me. That's like the black mecca, you know, I, I believe. Um, 
A nigga stand a chance in Atlanta. Freaknik, A Discourse on the Paradise Lost, is a production of Mass Appeal and Endeavor Audio. Created, produced, and narrated by myself, Christopher Frierson. Executive produced by Chris Colbert of DCP Entertainment. Produced by the one and only Savannah Jeffries, Mark Grandy, and Matt Graylin of Mass Appeal. Edited by Cher Vincent and Keith Memminger. Executive produced by Dave Easton and produced by Hannah Cope of Endeavor Audio. Technically produced by Nick Pacciano. Assistant edited by Jefferson Espitia and Louis San Giorgio. Associate producers Jackie Garofano, Brandon Tago, Adele Coleman, and John Klonowski of DCP Entertainment. Archival production by Jillian Bergman. We were mixed by Sue Pellino. Music supervision by Caroline Mislove. And our finishing producer was Stephanie Pacciano. Thank you, Steph. And last but not least, talent booking and all-around support, the Honorable Roberta McGreeny. Atlanta. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee.